Our Lord Jesus said that Scripture cannot be broken. So turn in your unbreakable Bible to Genesis chapter 34. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 28. Page 28. I wonder if you have ever been overwhelmed by what seems to be the immense darkness that has fallen upon us. Perhaps you've given up following the news because story after story seems to be one of crime or cruelty or catastrophe. But then, are you ever shaken by your own dark thoughts that perhaps fleetingly pass through your mind? It was just a moment, but you can't deny that it was there. It frightens you to think that, that you could imagine such wickedness. The world around us and our consciences testify that evil is real and that darkness is present. In the early part of the 20th century, as I understand it, the Times of London reached out to different people asking them to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? Purportedly, G.K. Chesterton wrote back with the briefest reply. In answer to the question, what is wrong with the world, he wrote, Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. The darkness in our world springs from the darkness of the human heart. The great message of the Bible is that God in his grace delivers, he saves sinners from darkness. This morning in Genesis 34, we stare into what is arguably one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. Sometimes we need to look at these things so that we might rejoice and see how great our God's deliverance is. The book of Genesis, as you may recall, recounts how God is fulfilling his promise to send his son, his savior, who will defeat sin and Satan and death, to overcome darkness and bring his people home into the world, which we prayed about earlier, into the world of his marvelous light. And really, that's why Genesis, the book of Genesis, is so concerned with lineage and land, because it's about this coming son. In our study, we've been following Jacob's journey home. In Genesis 33, Jacob, he safely arrived in the land of Canaan. Jacob escaped the grasp of Laban. He escaped the anger of Esau. And by God's grace, Jacob made it safely into the land. But that doesn't mean that life in the land is safe. Canaan is inhabited by a notoriously depraved people. Part of the reason that God would expel the Canaanites from the land in the conquest and give it to Israel was because of the iniquity of the people living in the land. But the Canaanites are not the only danger. There is a danger without, yes, but there is also a danger within. The people of Canaan are sinful, yes, and so is Jacob and his sons and his family. The people of Israel are sinners. And in fact, everyone in our passage fails in one way or another. And by the time we reach the end, we see that all are sinful and all need a savior. In Genesis 34, we are brought face to face with the horrific wickedness of the world, as well as the wickedness within God's own chosen people, the family of Jacob. And the only hope in the midst of such perversity are the saving purposes of the promise-keeping God. 
So here's what Genesis 34 teaches us. God meets our desperate need with his deliverance. Beloved, that's the sermon in a sentence. God meets our desperate need with his deliverance. Because when we look at this passage, we see that none of the people in the passage are the son that we're looking for and waiting for. We're going to take a serious look at this sober passage in three sections under three headings. The danger of all, the deceit of all, and the desperate need of all. I believe that you can find a, a fulsome outline provided there in your bulletins. Let's begin with our first point, the danger of all. And here we're looking at the first seven verses. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Genesis chapter 34, verses 1 to 7. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. These verses are horrifying. And the reaction of Jacob's sons there in verse 7 is surely the right and righteous response and perspective on what has occurred. Everyone in these verses is in some kind of danger. Dinah was in danger from Shechem. Shechem was in danger from being consumed by his passions. Hamor was in danger of his son's impetuous pride. Jacob was in danger of sinful silence. And Jacob's sons were in danger of allowing their anger to boil over. This true and tragic tale begins with failure in the family of Jacob and principally with Jacob himself. Notice those words in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah. You see, those words remind us that Jacob was not content to receive Leah as his one and only wife that God intended for him to have. In his sin, he also sought Laban's other daughter, Rachel, as a wife. He committed the sin of polygamy and began to play favorites among the sisters. He neglected Leah. In fact, in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, we're told that the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Jacob, his neglect of Leah, likely led to his neglect of Dinah, his daughter by Leah. And even if that's not the case, Jacob failed to teach his teenage daughter. You understand that Leah, uh, that Dinah is a teenager and, and no more. He failed to teach his teenage daughter of the dangers of Canaan. He failed to tell her that under no circumstances are you to go out into the worlds to learn from the women of the world. That's what that phrase, went out to see 
the women of the land, communicates. Dinah, this teenage girl, she was enthralled by the world. She wanted to see, to examine, to understand the ways of the women of Canaan. And Jacob should have taught Dinah what true beauty looks like according to God. And we must teach our daughters to look to the Word of God and not to the world to understand true and lasting beauty. We, we must teach our daughters what 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 says, which says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Jacob should have encouraged Dinah to be satisfied in learning what it meant to be a godly woman from her mother. And young women in our congregation, let me encourage you to reject the womanhood that the world offers and seeks to teach and train you in almost constantly. Reject the idea that you need to show more skin and instead pray for the grace to show the spirit of Christ. Learn the beauty of godly womanhood from faithful wives and mothers and women of our congregation. We are richly blessed with them. The world is alluring. It is enticing. And every father and mother needs to be prepared to teach their children not only of the world's desires, but also of the world's dangers. Not everyone out there has the best interests of our children at heart. Parents, you must teach your children about the places and people of this world. When you are driving around, use appropriate language and instruction. Tell your children that there is a restaurant, it is a club, which wickedly objectifies women. Sinful men, they go there to see women in little to no clothing. Don't ever go to a place like that. Chide and chastise everyone who does so that for the glory of God, they will be shamed and shut down. We must teach our children to live wisely in the world. Our daughters need to know that there are men like Shechem in the world. At college or other places, you must teach them to be very careful about being alone with a man. Be careful not to go to places of darkness or drunkenness. There is real wickedness in the world that you need to be wary of. There are men like Shechem in the world. Moses tells us that he was a prince in verse 2. He was a man who was well-known and well-liked in verse 19. Men like that will use their position, their prominence, their power to prey upon young women. And let me just say a word to the men, young and old, who are here with us today. You need to understand that pornography trains you to think, act, and treat women like Shechem treated Dinah. Not only is pornography linked, directly linked, to the heinous wickedness of human trafficking, but it trains you in the pernicious sin of pride and self-exaltation. The only way a man can treat a woman like this is if he has so exalted himself in pride that his passions are most important to him. Men at all costs, you need to cut any and all forms of pornography out of your life. And you must be determined to put pride to death and to cultivate humility in your heart. Listen to the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. 
brother, you know God. And you need to control your mind and your body for the glory of God. You need to invite other Christian men into your life to hold you accountable and to ask the awkward questions. For the sake of your soul, you need to welcome that and give thanks to God for that kind of involvement by other brothers in your life. Shechem violated Dinah. The language used of his action in verse 2 communicates that he did so by force. In other words, his advances were not welcomed by Dinah. And this is not Dinah's fault. Yes, she left the safety of her father's house, but Shechem's sin is not her fault. And if you're here this morning, and sadly you've been attacked, like Dinah was attacked, then you need to know it is not your fault either. The sin of your attacker is not your sin. And friend, the, the, the pastors of Arlington Baptist Church want you to know that we are available to talk with you and counsel you. We are grieved by how you've been treated. It's wicked and it is wrong. The sin committed against you is wrong. And we stand ready to give you help and hope from God's word. And there is hope. Jesus can heal humiliation. Jesus can restore your soul. Jesus can give you strength to start again. Come and find one of the pastors here. If you want to talk about this or anything that is heavy upon your heart. In verse 3, we see that in three different ways, Shechem's affection for Dinah is described. We're told there that his soul was drawn to Dinah, that he loved her, that he spoke tenderly to her. And this, you need to understand, is a thoroughly misguided love. Love does not see, take, and force itself upon another. In fact, do you know where that language of seeing and seizing first occurs in the Bible? It occurs in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve loved themselves most. They saw the fruit, like Shechem saw Dinah. They took the fruit by force, in violation of God's command, like Shechem took Dinah by force. Like Adam and Eve, Shechem loved himself most and first. He set himself up as God and disregarded God's good design for sexual intimacy. God's design is that sexual intimacy take place inside the loving and safe context of marriage. God's design is that sexual intimacy, that in sexual intimacy, each spouse pursues the pleasure of the other, not their own pleasure first. Shechem's love was more like an obsession. It was more focused on himself than upon Dinah. Do you see what he demanded there in verse 4? Get me this girl for my wife. Is that how an honorable son speaks to his father? Demanding that his father serve him? Absolutely not. Is that how a man in love speaks about the woman he loves? Does he just call her this girl? Or does he speak her name with delight and devotion? A man in love doesn't view the woman he loves as an object to be secured. Rather, he views his beloved as a whole person whose feelings and affections are given a prominent voice in their relationship. A man in love doesn't keep the woman he loves captive. It's not actually until verse 17 of this chapter that we realize that Shechem is holding Dinah captive. He has abducted her, kidnapped her, 
This is not the way of love. And we've actually seen this kind of action before from other men in the book of Genesis. Back in Genesis 12, Pharaoh saw Sarah, seized Sarah, and took her captive into his house. Then again in Genesis 20, Abimelech saw, seized, and took Sarai captive into his house. Then in Genesis 26, a different Abimelech saw and seized Rebekah from Isaac and took her captive into his house. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but this pattern in the book of Genesis makes sense of Jacob's sinful silence. It doesn't excuse it, but it helps us to recognize, oh, he's following in the same pattern as Abraham and Isaac before him. Jacob is now facing the moment when a significant woman in his life is abducted and held captive. And just like Abraham and Isaac, Jacob was afraid of the inhabitants of the land. Look down at verse 30, so almost to the end of the chapter, second to last verse, Genesis 34, verse 40. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves together against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Just like Abraham and Isaac, fear paralyzed Jacob. And so he failed to act righteously. He did not speak or secure the safety of his daughter. In fear, he stayed at home and held his peace. Sinful fear of man will make you silent and still. As we learned from the last chapter, Jacob had settled in the city. He bought a piece of land from Hamor and Shechem's family. He had gotten comfortable. Why lose all that he possesses? Why risk it? Why lose favor with the man in power? Even when Hamor seeks Jacob out, what we find is that Jacob's sons actually take the lead role in negotiating for the release of their sister. Sinful fear of man has made Jacob silent and still. Word is, is clearly spreading about what has happened. It somehow reaches Jacob, and we're told that it eventually reaches the field. It certainly can't be coming from Dinah as she's held captive. Whatever the case may be, we see there in verse 7, Jacob's reaction of Jacob's sons, as soon as they heard of it, they were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. That phrase in verse 7, you see that phrase there, he had done an outrageous thing in Israel, those particular words, in Israel, that phrase is actually anachronistic. It is, um, it's before its time. Israel, in the unfolding story of Genesis, is not yet a nation. What Moses is doing is that he is inserting the ethics of Israel, really the, the ethics of the God of Israel, into this narrative. Moses, he, he's teaching us here. He, he's teaching that, that you should be indignant when a woman is treated like this and attacked. You should be very angry when a woman is attacked like this. You should view such actions as an outrageous thing, a thing that must not be done and should never be done again. The punishments for such crimes inscribed in our laws today are arguably too lenient. If that's your reaction, if you take the side of Jacob's sons in their anger, do you know why that's your reaction? The reason is, is because God has made you in his image. 
The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, that because everyone is made in God's image, everyone intuitively knows God's principles of righteousness. Now, because of our own sin, because of our inheritance of sin from Adam, our, our perception of righteousness is definitely skewed. But at core, we, we know the difference between right and wrong because we've been made in God's image. That's why you know deep in your heart what Shechem did was wrong. That's why you know that today when women are abducted and attacked like this, you know that it's wrong and wicked. And before any of us are tempted to distance ourselves from the wickedness that we've read in these verses, let us remember that we're all guilty of sin and wickedness. We're even guilty of the, of the root sins that we see emerge and bear fruit here. You may not have abducted another person and forced yourself upon them. But have you ever been sinfully silent like Jacob? Have you ever failed to speak up for righteousness and justice and truth? Have you ever been sexually immoral, even when there has been consent and agreement? Jesus even tells us that sexual immorality is not just a matter of the body, but also a matter of the heart and mind. Have you ever committed the sin of pride? We've all been guilty of pride. That that was actually the, the seed of Shechem's sin, the germinating point of his heinous act. His pride exalted himself, and he set himself up as God, and he can treat anyone he likes because he rules over all. Have you ever loved the world like Dinah? The world is dangerous, and so are our hearts. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have failed. All are in desperate need of God to remain faithful to His purposes, to save us from ourselves and from our sin and from the consequences that's due to them. Our hope, our only hope, is that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We've seen the danger of all, but now in Genesis 34, verses 8 to 24, we're going to see the deceit of all. This is our second point, the deceit of all. As the negotiations progress concerning what to do in the aftermath of Dinah's attack, all sides, we see, have hidden and deceitful motives. Follow along as I read Genesis 34, verses 8 to 24. Verses 8 to 24. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will be well, become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you. 
and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give out them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out the gate of a city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Things go from bad, very, very bad to worse in these verses. After Dinah's attack, Hamor and Shechem try to remedy the wrong by inviting Jacob's family to unite with them. Both sides in the negotiations have their own murder, motives. One motive is murder. The other motive is money. Deceitful schemes are at work on all sides. And as the leader of his family, Hamor begins the negotiations. He begins by stating Shechem's longing for Dinah as his wife. And note carefully that there is no admission of guilt or wrong. Not a single time does he say what my son did was wrong. Not a single time does Shechem say what I did was wrong. At no point does Hamor or Shechem apologize or seek Jacob's forgiveness. This is simply the way of the Canaanites. They take first and ask questions later. In verse 9, Hamor pivots from Shechem's passions to the main proposal. He is not just interested in Dinah as the bride of his son. He wants there to be a union between the Canaanites and the Israelites. He doesn't just want a marriage between the two persons, but between the two peoples. And what is more, this is completely different from what we've seen before. Earlier in Genesis chapter 12, 20, and 26, remember when those powerful rulers abducted a woman related to the family of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob? Ultimately, God brought those rulers to their senses. He convicted them, and they returned their captors and even showered uh, Abraham and Isaac with blessings. But that's not what is happening here, is it? Dinah is not being released. Gifts are not being showered upon Jacob. Instead, Hamor is asking to make a deal, and a deal with strings attached. Later, in the Pentateuch, God would forbid the Israelites from intermarrying with other peoples. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 to 4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. See, the reasons against uh, intermarrying in the Pentateuch were not racial. They were religious. If the people of Israel intermarried with people who worshipped false gods, foreign gods, then they would be led astray from the worship of the one true and living God. Actually, in the Pentateuch, we see that marriage with Gentiles was, was permissible and, and welcome, so long as that Gentile converted 
faithfully to the true religion of the God of Israel. They first joined themselves to Israel and then they could marry among the people of Israel. Uh, this design by God was uh, for the purpose of protecting the holiness of his people. Notice how the world is tempting the people of God to use sinful means to gain the promises of God. Hamor offers in verse 10 land and prosperity. Hamor is offering Jacob the promises of God accomplished through the power of man. That should immediately wake Jacob up out of his silent stupor. God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would give them land, that he would give them prosperity, that he would give them children. They were to look to God, not to man, for the fulfillment of God's promises. But here is Hamor tempting Jacob like the devil tempted Jesus. Remember, he offered him the kingdoms of the world, which is actually what God the Father was going to give to the Son. He went through the cross and the grave and the resurrection. But Satan was trying to offer Jesus the nations of the world without the cross. This is what Satan always does. Hamor is offering Jacob the world and all that is in it. If he would simply agree to unite together and form one people. Genesis has taught us over and over again that the fulfillment of God's promises come by God's power. Jacob and the sons of Jacob should reject this offer and demand the return of Dinah. But before they can even get a word in, the young, impetuous, prideful Shechem speaks up. In verse 11 and 12, Shechem, he, he takes over the negotiations from his father, kind of dishonoring his father in the process. Shechem pleads with Jacob and his sons. He, he offers them a blank check. Twice he says, whatever you say to me, I will give. Beloved, take note of this. The world will tempt you with everything. The world will promise you everything. The only thing you need to give is just one thing. This is how the world and the devil deceitfully negotiate. If you just give me this one thing, I'll give you everything. One thing for everything. It's a sounds nice, doesn't it? Like a great deal, but it's not. How does the children's story go? If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk. And if you give him a glass of milk, then I'll ask you for a straw and a napkin and so on. He always asks for more. So it is with the devil, the world, and the sinful passions of our flesh. They always ask for more. Sin is a master, not a servant. Sin must be fed. But we should starve sin and starve its allurements. In verses 13 to 17, the sons of Jacob answer with a counteroffer and a compromise. The father's... Um, the fathers, uh, Jacob, Jacob and Hamor, they've taken a back seat. They've been displaced by their sons. Uh, Shechem wants Dinah. And the sons of Jacob, they want revenge. We see this come out in their counter and compromise. In verse 13, Moses lets us know that they answer Hamor deceitfully. Moses doesn't want us to misunderstand what's going on here. The sons of Jacob are sinning. They, they're deceivers, just like their dad. Jacob, like Jacob before them, they depend upon deceit to deliver justice for Dinah's defilement. True justice can never depend upon a lie. True justice can never depend upon a lie. True justice can never be delivered to a truly aggrieved party by deceit. Deceit in and of itself is unjust. And injustice can never bring true 
justice. And as you can see there in verse 14, the sons of Jacob, they reject the offer of a union between the peoples. They, they argue that it would be a disgrace to them. If they form this agreement on the basis of their sister's humiliation, then they as a people will never be viewed with honor. They'll be simply humiliated forever in the eyes of the Canaanites. Moreover, they, they can't unite with an uncircumcised people. That's the second reason for the rejection there in verse 14. It's, it's kind of religious grounds. Circumcision, you remember, is the special covenant sign of the people of God. It identified them as belonging to Yahweh. It reminded them that God made promises to them, promises that he intended to keep. The rejection really turns to a recasting of the offer in verses 15 and 16. Basically, if the people of Shechem humbled themselves by undergoing circumcision, then according to Jacob's sons, they may become one. Now just stop and think about the callousness of this conditional offer from Jacob's sons. Jacob's sons turn a sign with deep spiritual significance into a commodity to be bartered. The sign which signifies that the Savior of the world will come through the people of Israel is being sinfully used for revenge. They invite the people of Canaan to commit religious hypocrisy under the guise of agreement and assimilation. This tells us just how much anger had clouded their consciences. They were right to be angry for the sin that had been committed against their sister. But they needed to heed the word of Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. At the end of the day, it's all a lie. Lie upon lie upon lie. And this is coming from the lips of those who are the chosen people of God. It is sinful and shameful. And the sons of Jacob, they don't actually even leave the matters there. In verse 17, they turn to threats. They put an ultimatum on Hamor and Shechem. They say, if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter. Now, when they say that we will take our daughter, when they will take Dinah, we're reminded that she's being held captive. But there's more. Jacob's sons are threatening to take Dinah just like Shechem took her. They're using the same language of force that was used of Shechem's actions there in verse 2. Jacob's sons are threatening civil war in their city if they don't agree and the men aren't circumcised. Verses 18 to 24 tell how Hamor, Shechem, and the people of the city accept the agreement and spring into action. Particularly, you'll notice that Shechem acts right away. We're told that he did not delay to do the thing. That means that he went out and was immediately circumcised. This is reminiscent of Abraham's immediate obedience back in Genesis chapter 17 when God gave him that covenant sign of circumcision. And there, Abraham actually persuaded his whole household to be circumcised immediately too. And that's exactly what happens there in verse 24. There's prompt and total submission by all the men of the city. There's even a double emphasis there at the end of the verse. Do you see it? We're told that every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of his city. And did you catch the why? Why they agreed to this, why they were willing to do this. The motives of Jacob's sons were sinful, they were deceitful, but so were the motives of the Canaanites. You notice there in verse 23, Hamor and Shechem persuade the men to believe that when the dust settles, all belongs to them. They're, they're going to get all the property of the Israelites, their livestock and beasts, everything will be theirs. Murder, as we're going to see, motivated the sons of Jacob. And money motivated the people of Canaan. Deceit was an instrument used by all to gain all, but all would lose. 
And as the chapter closes, we see the desperate need of all. This is our third point, the desperate need of all. Follow along as I read the remaining verses, verses 25 to 31. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city when it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? What a disastrous end to an utterly dark chapter of the Bible. The sons of Jacob, particularly Simeon and Levi, wait for the opportune moment to attack the city. Their deceitful scheme had worked perfectly. The men were sore, the city felt secure, and then, as verse 25 tells us, they slaughtered all the males. Simeon and Levi, they took the lead because they were the two sons of Leah. They were related to Dinah. They knew that their father played favorites, and they weren't about to stand idly by when their sister's honor was defiled. And personally, I... I just can't get over how Simeon and Levi used the sign of the covenant to advance their sinful scheme. Another pastor likened their actions to like offering baptism just to drown the person in the pool. What Jacob's sons did here was appalling. It was cruel. It was disgusting, gruesome, heinous. It was wicked in the sight of God. Matthew Henry was surely right when he wrote that Christianity is never more injured, nor are God's sacraments more profaned than when they are used for a cloak of maliciousness. Beloved, when we gather together at this table, the end of the service, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, let us be sure that we are using God's gifts as he designed and intended them to be used. That's part of the reason that we examine ourselves before the Lord, before we partake of this meal. Moses, he especially reports there in verse 26 that they took the sword to Hamor and Shechem and that they took Dinah out of Shechem's house. Dinah went out of the house first to begin the chapter and now she goes out of the house in safety and with her brothers. And yet, their vengeance still wasn't satisfied. They plundered the city. Moses tells us that it was not because they were greedy but because they wanted justice for their sister. They took whatever was in the city and in the field. They took it all, just like Shechem took all of Dinah's honor. The chapter begins with the plundering of a woman's honor, and the chapter ends with the plundering of the city. The whole city, the many, endure punishment by the sword because of the sin of one. What Simeon 
and Levi do to the city is a foretaste of what the people of Israel would do throughout the whole land in the conquest of Canaan. The essential difference between the conquest, conquest of, of Canaan, recorded in the book of Joshua, and the conquering of this city here in Genesis, is that God authorized and commanded the conquest of Canaan. That was just. It was God's exercise of justice through his people. But this was not. This was not authorized by God. This was excessive vengeance and violence. Shechem alone should have been punished for his sinful crime. Simeon and Levi killed innocent men. Righteous anger had crossed the line into unrighteous and uncontrolled anger. And Jacob was right to rebuke his sons in verse 30. But in this moment, he did so for the wrong reasons. Jacob rebuked his sons because he was afraid of the potential retribution that other inhabitants of the land might bring upon him. I mean, did you notice how concerned he was with himself there in verse 30? Look at it again. My numbers are few. What if they gather themselves against me and attack me? I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob is consumed with his safety. If Jacob's household were in danger, then that would indeed be a threat to the promises of God. If all of Jacob's family were put to death, then that would indeed bring an end to the line of the Savior. But who keeps God's promises and people safe? Jacob is not the one who keeps God's promises safe. God's promises are not dependent upon Jacob's power. God's promises always come by God's power. God always protects his promises by his power. God always fulfills his promises by his power. This is not Jacob's uh, need to protect here. It's God's. And this actually is not the last of Jacob's rebuke. When Jacob is on his deathbed blessing his sons at the end of the book of Genesis, this is what he says in Genesis 49, verses 5 to 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And that's exactly what happens, actually. After the conquest, when the land is allotted to the people of Israel, Simeon is basically absorbed into the tribe of Judah, and Levi is scattered throughout the cities of Israel. Jacob's rebuke has landed, but Jacob's sons land a rebuke of their own. They ask a rhetorical question which exposes the sinful failure of Jacob. He was not interested in securing justice for Dinah. He was interested in securing his place in the city, and that's where the chapter ends, with Jacob as a failure. It ends really with everyone as a failure. Do you realize that there is no mention of God in this chapter? Yeah. Not a single one. Is it any wonder that this chapter is so dark when a community, a city, a society, a person is left to themselves? This is the result. Depraved young men pursue their passions. Delinquent fathers fail to lead their families and deceitful sons give vent to their anger. When God is rejected and neglected, no wonder death and destruction follow. Don't you see? There's not a single person in this chapter who can deliver us from this death and destruction. It's all darkness and everyone is guilty. Those outside of the people of God and those inside the people of God are guilty. 
The conclusion of this chapter shows us the desperate need for God to intervene, to deliver us from ourselves and from our sin and what we deserve because of it. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve to be paid for our working in sin. Many of you worked jobs this past week, and you'll receive pay for that. But we've all worked in sin this past week. And what we deserve to be paid is eternal death. We deserve to face the eternal wrath of God for our sin against Him. And amazingly, God did not leave this wicked world or the family of Jacob to themselves. The story continues from here, and God remains faithful to His promises to send His Savior. From the rubble of this depraved and deceitful family of Jacob, God brings redemption, marvelous deliverance. He brings salvation and forgiveness. And one of the things that is so amazing about God's grace is that neither Jacob's sin, nor the sins of his son, nor the sins of anyone stand in the way of God fulfilling his promises to send Jesus in the fullness of time. In God's grace, he sent a son of Jacob. God the Father sent Jesus. And when Jesus steps onto the scene to begin his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. On those who are dwelling in darkness, a light has dawned. And as the apostles look back on Jesus' ministry, they tell us that Jesus committed no sin. And neither was deceit found in his mouth. Here we have a son of Jacob, the son of Jacob we've been waiting for, the sinless son who restore all that was lost in the fall. And instead of lying waste to the world for our sin, which we surely deserve, Jesus laid down his life on the cross for the sins of the world. In the words of Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, while we were without power, while we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And when Jesus was raised up from the grave on the third day, he did not turn his sword against us, but against death and the devil. And Jesus defeated them. And he plundered the devil's stores and he set the captives free. Captives like you and me, those who are captive to our sin. Do you recognize your desperate need for Jesus? Do you recognize your desperate need for his rescue and his salvation? Oh, friend, repent. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Believe that he lived for you, that he died for you, that he was raised from the grave on the third day for the forgiveness of your sins. Submit your life to Jesus' loving lordship. The only way out of the darkness that we see in Genesis 34, the only way out of the darkness in our hearts is to hold on to Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus promises that those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friend, if you want to know more about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus, that in your heart his light can dawn, and you can be redeemed from the darkness of your heart, you come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about this morning than this good news in Jesus Christ. And as we conclude, each one of us should let Genesis 34 be a mirror to our souls. And let us not deceive ourselves and pretend that there is no darkness in our hearts. If we deny the darkness of our hearts, we deny the deliverance that's available to us in Jesus Christ. You 
need Jesus and your need is desperate and God can meet your need in Jesus Christ. In fact, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, when a man is saved, he is delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. God meets our desperate need with His deliverance. He's the only one who can do it. Has He delivered you from darkness? Has He transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son? And are you going one day to be a part of that kingdom of glory in which Jesus and His light shines forevermore? Pray that you would. Let's pray for that grace now. Do you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you sent your Son to be the light of the world. Father, we pray and ask that you would cause us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in faith this day, that every soul here would hold on to Jesus Christ as their only hope in life and in death. And Father, we pray and ask that you would cause us to be lights for the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing darkness to this world. Father, would you honor your name? Would you honor the name of your Son and cause his light to shine in our hearts and in our community around us? We pray and ask this for your glory's sake. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.